The Rapture of Cruelty. Carmilla in Classic Cinema. Hello, I'm Madeline Smith, and I played Emma, the victim of Ingrid Pitt's Carmilla, in Hammer Films' The Vampire Lovers. I'm very pleased to be reading the audio essay, The Rapture of Cruelty, Carmilla in Classic Cinema, by Dr. Steve Haberman. In 1741, at age 53, the Swedish Christian theologian, scientist, philosopher, and mystic, Emanuel Swedenborg, began to experience dreams and waking visions. According to his divinely inspired work, The Heavenly Doctrine, God opened Swedenborg's inner eye so that he could encounter angels, demons, and other supernatural beings. Over the last 28 years of his life, Swedenborg wrote 18 published theological works based on these meetings with spirits from the mystic realm. The new church, founded in 1787 by several existing Christian denominations, revered Swedenborg's writings as revelation. After the death of his mentally ill wife, the brilliant Irish writer of supernatural tales, Sheridan Le Fanu, became fascinated by Swedenborg's interactions with otherworldly beings. Towards the end of his life, Le Fanu authored the groundbreaking 1872 novella of lesbian vampirism, Carmilla. Le Fanu's occult classic predated his fellow Irish author Bram Stoker, his 1897 novel, Dracula, by a quarter of a century, and heavily influenced its presentation of the vampire as a metaphor for corrupt, insatiable sexuality. Before Carmilla, Goethe's Bride of Corinth, E.T.A. Hoffman's Aurelia, John Keats' Lania, Théophile Gautier's Clarimonde and The Witch in Gogol's V were presented as supernatural female seducer-destroyers, but not necessarily as vampires and not as predators of other females. Samuel Taylor Coleridge's narrative poem Christabel, written in 1800 and published in 1816, did tell the story of a sinister supernatural creature in the guise of a beautiful young girl, Geraldine, who seduces the innocent Christabel into bed and means her harm. Le Fanu must have been influenced by Coleridge's poem because Carmilla has many specifics in common with it. The virginal young girl in both lives in an isolated castle with her noble father after losing her mother. In both, the beautiful female predator is found in the woods around the castle by the protagonist and invited to stay with her. The dead mothers try to warn their daughters of their danger in a vision in each tale. Both Coleridge and Le Fanu daringly dramatise overt lesbian overtures from the predators to their victims that the tainted innocents must then hide in shame and both young heroines suffer nightmares in their sleep and awaken weak and drained in the morning after spending the night with their lovely guest. In 1746, 
the abbot of Senon, Dom Augustine Carnet, wrote the first edition of Treatise on the Apparitions of Spirits and on the Vampires or Revenants of Hungary, Moravia, etc. It thoroughly examined written evidence of angels, demons and spirits and also included studies of witchcraft, vampires and revenants. A learned scholar, Calmet, analysed numerous accounts in the Bible, mythology and legend, as well as historically documented claims from Hungary, Bohemia, Moravia and Silesia. Calmet's work was translated into English in 1850 by the Reverend Henry Christmas as the Phantom World. And it was this version that Le Fanu undoubtedly consulted as the source for the vampire folklore in Carmilla. Le Fanu included Carmilla as the last and longest story in his 1872 collection, In a Glass Darkly. In 1931, the great Danish film director, Carl Theodor Dreyer, adapted elements from several of those tales into his haunting and experimental feature, Vampire. While not strictly an adaptation of Carmilla, Dreyer's movie includes a female vampire shown as an aged crone in the film and the attempted seduction by one of her young and lovely victims of another equally attractive girl. Dreyer also dramatises a long scene of premature burial from an accompanying story in Le Fanu's collection, The Room in the Dragon Volant, that becomes a stunning cinematic set piece told largely through subjective shots from the victim's point of view as he stares helplessly through the window of the coffin lid while being transported by pallbearers to an outdoor graveyard. Dreyer found unique ways to film Swedborgian visions of the occult world, intruding on reality from the perspective of his supernaturally sensitive hero. He shot most of the movie through transparent gauze that gave a foggy, soft indistinctiveness to the images, using shadows and mysterious sounds to represent beings from another dimension. Dreyer created an atmosphere of sinister powers from beyond that prey on unsuspecting mortals. The narrative proceeds illogically in a non-linear fashion like the events of a nightmare. And even the hero acts with vague, unspecific motives. A commercial failure, Vampire survives as one of the most unique works from the first decade of sound horror in cinema. Universal Pictures' 1936 sequel to their 1931 version of Dracula called Dracula's Daughter, was far more commercially minded than Dreyer's film, but it presented its female vampire with the same kind of sober, languid sadness and included a scene in which she reacts with growing sexual excitement 
to the prospect of feeding on a young, beautiful, homeless girl she has picked up from the streets. This moment is the first overt portrayal of lesbianism in vampire cinema and is still tense and transgressive. But the story of Dracula's daughter bears no resemblance to Carmilla, aside from the sexual orientation of its beautiful female bloodsucker. On March the 18th, 1944, RKO producer Val Newton, who had created such brilliant low-budget horror movies as Cat People and I Walked with a Zombie, had a first draft treatment for his proposed adaptation of Le Fanu's Carmilla. Luton transposed the setting from Styria in 1872 to the burgeoning American colonies of 1756. By May 1944, the trade press announced that horror superstar Boris Karloff, who had signed a two-picture deal with RKO to appear in Luton's films, would star in Carmilla, along with a film version of Robert Louis Stevenson's the Body Snatcher. The treatment for Carmilla, which Luton planned to eventually shoot in colour, was not very faithful to Le Fanu's story and also lacked the kind of ambiguity between the supernatural and reality that Luton liked. With a cave full of vampire bats, a shapeshifter entering a girl's bedroom, an island of graves in a swamp, and a priest drawing an occult circle to protect characters from the living dead. Luton's Carmilla was overtly supernatural and contained many vampire movie cliches from Universal's Dracula series. In addition, Karloff's part, whether he played the father of the vampire's victim or the priest fighting the creature, was a supporting one very much subsidiary to the beautiful female bloodsucker and the young couple on which she preyed. The project died with the first draft of the treatment and the Los Angeles Times announced on May the 19th, complete revision of plans for Boris Karloff's first picture at RKO. Instead of Carmilla, he will be the star of the Island of the Dead an original, Isle of the Dead, as the film was eventually called, demonstrated Luton's subtle aesthetic of the supernatural far better than did his treatment for Carmilla. But it did reference fear of the Greek vampire, the Vorvolika, and it did contain scenes in which a young woman is suspected of praying on her middle-aged female employer. However, the finished film salutes such Edgar Allan Poe stories as The Fall of the House of Usher and The Mask of the Red Death, far more than it references Le Fanu's Carmilla. In 1953, Universal International Pictures planned to follow their Gothic horror revival films the Strange Door and The Black Castle, both 
featuring Karloff, with an adaptation of Carmilla. The movie would be in 3D, in period, to be produced by Ross Hunter and penned by the screenwriter of Luton's Cat People, the seventh victim and curse of the Cat People, DeWitt Bodine. Only a 16-page treatment by Bodine survives, and it is reasonably faithful to Le Fanu's story, given the restrictions of screen morality and conventions in 1950s America. As in Luton's earlier unmade treatment, the young female protagonist is given a boyfriend, and the sexual tension between the girl and the beautiful vampire downplayed almost to non-existence. With the success of their 3D science fiction horror films, it came from outer space in 1953 and The Creature from the Black Lagoon in 1954. Universal International cancelled their plans for Carmilla and other Gothic horrors in favour of more trendy fare, such as Tarantula, This Island Earth and The Incredible Shrinking Man. In 1960, young French director Roger Vadim cast his beautiful blonde wife, Annette Stroiberg, as Carmilla, in a very loose, modernised version. At an elegant European country estate, actually Emperor Hadrian's villa in Italy, gorgeously captured in Technicolor and Technirama by cinematographer Claude Renoir, Carmilla struggles with her jealousy over the engagement of her friend Georgia, played by Elsa Martinelli, to her handsome, beloved cousin, Leopoldo, played by Mel Ferrer. Although she clearly loves Leopoldo, Camillo also shows repressed interest in his fiancée. During a spectacular masquerade ball celebrating the upcoming marriage, a fireworks display accidentally explodes some lost munitions from World War II, unearthing an ancestral mausoleum. Carmilla, wearing the white dress of her legendary vampire ancestor, Milkana Karenstein, wanders into the open crypt where the tomb of Milkarna slowly opens. In the morning, Carmilla, obviously changed by the experience, reappears at Leopoldo's estate while the last guests leave. She seems to be possessed by the spirit of Milaka. A subsequent rash of mysterious attacks and deaths from loss of blood terrify the staff at the villa. Blood and Roses was released by Paramount Pictures in France on September the 14th, 1960, in Rome, in January 1961, and in the United States on September the 2nd, 1961. While it plays more like an arty European romantic drama, the film does contain some striking surrealistic dream scenes with daring uses of colour and black and white, and an original, if slow-moving, rumination on the psychological implications of the vampire myth. 
The dream scenes eschew gothic cliches and are set in a black and white hospital corridor and operating room, populated by listless women, personifying blood, transference and death in 20th century terms. The movie was dubbed, cut of its brief nudity, narrated with an added voiceover from Milarka, and its beginning and ending altered in the United States by Paramount, but still failed to find a large audience. The European version ends with Carmilla impaled on a fence post. But the United States version continues the narration from Milarka, now possessing Georgia. In 1964, Christopher Lee starred in a much lower budgeted version of Carmilla in period and filmed in black and white in Italy. According to co-writer Tonino Valeri, the script was written in three days. Ernesto Gastaldi, the other author, claimed that it was written in only 24 hours. According to Gastaldi, he lied to the producer when he pitched the project, at first called The Curse of the Karnsteins, telling him that the screenplay was already finished. When the producer liked the idea and wanted the pages the following day, Gastaldi had to rush back to Valeri and pen the whole draft in 24 hours. The producers approached Antonio Margariti, director of such skilled Italian gothics as Castle of Blood, The Long Hair of Death. They had to settle for agent Liliana Bancini's suggested replacement, Camilo Rastrosinke, primarily a director of comedies, when Margariti was unable to work the project into his busy schedule. Co-writer Tonino Valeri, an experienced filmmaker, worked as the assistant director on the set and claimed to have directed several scenes himself. Another loose adaptation, Crypt of the Vampire, used several scenes and characters from Carmilla, but added complications and subplots not in the original novella. Lonely Laura Karnstein, played by Audrey Amber, suffers from nightmares and dreams of her cousin Tilda being attacked and killed by a presence emerging from a coach with a Karnstein K emblazoned on its door. Fearing that Laura is possessed by the witch Skira of Karnstein, who centuries ago cursed the Karnstein family at her execution. Laura's father, the Count Ludwig Karnstein, played by Christopher Lee, hires Friedrich Klaus, a young and handsome scholar of medieval history, to research Skira's life and find a portrait of her. When a carriage breaks down outside the Karnstein Castle and its lovely passenger, Luba, played by Ursula Davis, stays as a house guest, she and Laura become close friends. Luba soon feels closer to Laura than to her father or Friedrich, who is falling in love with her. Luba suggests she and Laura visit the ruins of the village of Karnstein, a spot that Laura fears for its legends of an evil past. But Luba charms Laura into accompanying her there. Following the mysterious ringing of the bell 
in the deserted chapel, they find that a hunchbacked peddler has been hung from the pole and his right hand cut off. The faithful housekeeper Rowena uses it as a hand of glory to pray to her master Satan. Lead me to the murderer of the peddler, she pleads, hoping that Laura, possessed by the Karnstein witch Skira, has not murdered the peddler. Rowena is killed before she learns the truth. Meanwhile, Friedrich finally finds the picture of the long-dead witch Skira, who strongly resembles not Laura, but Laura's guest, Liuba. Liuba persuades Laura to run away from the castle with her, and as they escape towards the village, Count Karnstein and Friedrich search the cellars for Skira's tomb. Together, they locate Skira's sarcophagus and pry it open to find Liuba lying there. They drive a stake through her body just as Laura is about to enter Liuba's black carriage. Suddenly, the carriage and Liuba vanish. Laura stands alone at the roadside, purged of her fears about her possession by an evil ancestor. Terror in the Crypt was released in Italy on May the 27th, 1964, where it was distributed by MEC. It was released theatrically in the United Kingdom as Crypt of Horror. In the United States, it was released straight to television by American International Pictures Television as Crypt of the Vampire. With atmospheric black and white cinematography, by Giulio Ortas and impressive locations at the Castello Piccolomini in Balsorano, director Mastrosink brings a subtle style and a gothic gravitas to the complicated proceedings. The narrative, if over-elaborate, is still compelling and surprising, even if one is familiar with the original Le Fanu story. But as effective as it is, Crypt of the Vampire, like the adaptations before it, does not really explore the mystery and the subtle erotic power of the novella. On November the 12th, 1966, the esteemed Thames television anthology of classic horror, Mystery and Imagination, broadcast an hour-long version of Carmilla on the ITV network, recorded on black and white video tape. The series featured television plays based on the works of well-known authors such as Mary Shelley, Edgar Allan Poe, Robert Louis Stevenson and M.R. James. And it starred my future husband David Buck as Richard Beckett, a character from Le Fanu's story The Room in the Dragon Volant as narrator. Buck as Beckett, was made the host of the series for the first two seasons, even taking the roles of various characters in some of the stories. Bill Bain directed the script of Carmilla by Stanley Miller, and 25-year-old actress Jane Merrow played the beautiful vampire. Unfortunately, like most of the episodes from the first three seasons of Mystery and Imagination, 
this intriguing version of Carmilla is lost. Four years later, another British adaptation resulted in the most faithful and popular movie version of Carmilla to date, namely Hammer Films' 1970 box office success, The Vampire Lovers. An independent company called Fantal Films initiated the project, packaged it, presented it to James Carreras of Hammer Films in October 1969. Former actor and partner at Fantal, Harry Fine, realised that Carmilla would be the perfect subject for Hammer Films after he saw a stage production of it. He and his partner Michael Stile commissioned writer Tudor Gates to pen a screenplay, closely following the events of the book, but putting them into chronological order instead of Le Fanu's flashback structure, as related by the novella's first-person narrator, Laura. Fine said, We had an excellent treatment of Carmilla by J. Sheridan Le Fanu, with a screenplay by Tudor Gates. We sat through four Hammer films to get the feel of them. We went into a very careful analysis of the market, too. Their study made them aware that the British film industry was drastically changing at the end of the 60s. The British Board of Film Censors had altered their antiquated classification system to reflect the more liberal attitudes of audiences at the time. The new AA certificate allowed 14-year-olds to see films that would have been certified as an X before, meaning no one under 16 allowed. The age restrictions for the new X prohibited those under 18 to be admitted, allowing more sex and violence to be shown. In the United States, the new ratings code of the Motion Picture Association of America was even more lenient letting those 16 and over view R-rated or restricted films, while those under 16 could attend as well, if accompanied by an adult. Fine, Styles, Gates and Carreras realised the time was right to up the quotient of sex and violence in Hammer Films products, and their version of Carmilla would feature not only blood and cleavage, but nudity and lesbian sex as well. Under these new, more tolerant worldwide circumstances, Carreras decided to approach Hammer Films' American rival in gothic horror and exploitation cinema, American International Pictures, to finance the project. As was his habit, Carreras commissioned a lurid poster for The Vampire Lovers, and approached the founders of AIP, Samuel Z. Arkoff and James H. Nicholson, and the pair already had experience with the British production of gothic horror films, having made their successful Edgar Allan Poe movies, The Mask of the Red Death, Tomb of Lagia, The Conqueror Worm, and The Oblong Box there. AIP invested £165,227, equivalent then to $400,000, and the contract was signed on November the 25th, 1969. 
John Trevelyan, Chief Secretary of the British Board of Film Censors, sent a five-page letter to Harry Fine expressing concern about the script. It contains a lot of material that we would be unhappy about, even with an X at 18, he wrote. As was their wont, Hammer proceeded anyway, and in fact, happily received their X certificate for the finished film, without making any of the cuts suggested by the BBFC. James Carreras initiated a casting coup that would hugely enhance the vampire lovers and create a horror movie icon. Ignoring Nefanu's description of Carmilla as a pale, slender, fragile young woman in her early 20s, Carreras insisted on the glamorous 33-year-old Polish actress Ingrid Pitt in the role. Possessing the bedroom eyes and high cheekbones of a young Marlena Dietrich, who was actually mooted for the part when Universal International flirted with their unmade version in 1953, Pitt made Carmilla an unapologetic seductress of both men and women, and a believable adversary for the patriarchs who gather to defeat her. Her deep, accented voice and emotional performance create an unforgettable impression of Carmilla as a sometimes sweet, sometimes flirty, sometimes tragic and sometimes feral creature who is larger than life and not wholly of this world. Not since Bela Lugosi in the 1931 Dracula had an actor's personality so enhanced the character of a vampire. Pitt claimed to be a mere 26 at the time. Hmm, she does play younger than her 33 years in The Vampire Lovers. But her maturity actually matches the world-weary quality of Le Fanu's Carmilla, who behaves as if she has much more experience and emotional complexity than a woman in her early 20s. Le Fanu's character of General Spielsdorf, a middle-aged man who bitterly swears vengeance against the female vampire for killing his niece, and who ultimately slays the creature, was a perfect role for Hammer's great star, Peter Cushing. Of course, one of Cushing's most famous roles for Hammer was Dr. Van Helsing, who memorably dispatched the King of the Undead in the company's first vampire movie, Dracula, in 1958, known as Horror of Dracula in the United States. In Le Fanu, General Spielsdorf appears towards the end of the tale and tells his sad story in a flashback. As restructured by screenwriter Gates, the vampire lovers prominently feature Spielsdorf in the first and third acts, and he disappears in the second act as the main plot of Carmilla and her relationship with Emma develops. In Le Fanu's original, Emma was named Laura. In The Vampire Lovers, Gates gives the name of Laura to General Spielsdorf's doomed niece, whose name is Bertha in the novella. Playing Emma for Hammer was myself, 20-year-old Madeline Smith, well-suited as the sweet and naive object of Carmilla's affection and thirst. 
Smith had already appeared in a small part in Hammer's Taste the Blood of Dracula and would go on to prominent roles in Terence Fisher's last gothic for the company, Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell, as well as Vincent Price's personal favourite of his horror movies, Theatre of Blood. Douglas Wilmer was cast as Baron Hartog, a clever combination of two characters from Le Fanu's novella, one of whom steals a shroud to lure a Karnstein vampire to doom, and another who knows the whereabouts of the crypts and finds Carmilla's resting place. The two characters are distant relations in Le Fanu's work. The Baron Vordenberg, who guides Laura's father and General Spielsdorf to Carmilla's crypt, and his ancestor, another Baron Vordenberg, who years earlier lures the Karnstein vampire, a male in the book, to the tower by stealing his shroud. Cuts his head off. That ancestor, who loved Carmilla, destroys as many Karnsteins as he can find in their graves, then moves Carmilla's coffin so she might be spared through the ages. Gates combined and simplified this backstory to show Baron Hartog, in the movie's prologue, stealing the shroud, luring the, in the movie, female vampire to the tower and beheading her. The same Baron Hartog later guides Emma's father and the general to Carmilla's grave, with no mention of a previous relationship with her. George Cole was cast as Emma's father and Dawn Adams appeared as the evil, lying countess who arranges to have Carmilla stay with General Spielsdorf and later the Morton family. In order to give Carmilla another victim in the Morton household, Kate O'Mara was cast as Madame Peridot, a much younger and more sexual governess than the character described by Le Fanu. The character of the Morton butler, Renton, was added for the same reason, and Harvey Hall was given the part. Ferdy Maine, who memorably played a vampire in Roman Polanski's parody of Hammer films, The Fearless Vampire Killers, was cast by Hammer as the doctor, assisting the victims of the undead in The Vampire Lovers. John Finch, who would soon be cast as the lead for Polanski's spectacular film version of Macbeth, and follow that by being chosen by Hitchcock to play the anti-hero in Frenzy, acquits himself well as a young man attractive to both Laura and Emma in The Vampire Lovers. A character not in Le Fanu's original John Forbes Robertson was cast as a mysterious and sinister character mentioned by Le Fanu, who supposedly brings bad news to the scheming countess during a ball. But screenwriter Gates extends his part by having him silently watch over the movements of Carmilla as she victimises the two households. Forbes Robertson would later be the only actor other than Christopher Lee, 
to play Dracula for Hammer in Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires. Since Hammer's greatest director of gothic horror, Terence Fisher, was still recovering from a broken leg, resulting from being hit by a car, Hammer chose Roy Ward Baker, who had directed the best Titanic movie, A Night to Remember, in 1958, as well as Hammer's more recent, critically lauded, Quatermass and the Pit, in 1967. He said, I had an excellent cast, giving straightforward, honest performances. They followed my line, which was to play the whole thing simply and literally, without camping it up or deriding the characters. Mirroring the Swedenborgian vision of a hidden spiritual world intruding on nature, Baker said, I decided that the style should be generally realistic, but should include magic and suggestions of the supernatural. There were some good atmosphere shots with Carmilla gliding through a graveyard in clouds of dry ice, which look quite unreal. Unlike Fisher, who preferred to present his monsters as realities in the actual world, Baker, like Swedenborg and indeed Le Fanu, allows the audience to glimpse visions from the inner eye as it briefly spots signs of another dimension of spirits existing alongside ours. Baker shot The Vampire Lovers between January the 19th and March the 4th at Elstree Studios, as well as at Moor Park Golf Club, which became the exterior of General Spielsdorf's mansion, at Walhall College in Aldenham, which represented the Morton Castle, and at Black Park, Hammer's favourite location for woods and lakes. Even during production, Carreras knew the movie would be a hit, and he initiated the sequel with another sensational poster bearing the title To Love a Vampire. AIP decided not to participate in the sequel, and so Carreras approached the British company EMI, which did provide the funding. The Vampire Lovers was released at London's New Victoria Cinema on September the 3rd, 1970, by MGM EMI, and went on general release in the UK October the 4th, AIP releasing it in the United States on October the 22nd. Ironically, the Philadelphia Daily News described it as a literate, witty, and dead straight vampire movie. Variety said, Miss Pitt shows a grave and sinister attractiveness. Hollywood's hometown paper, the Los Angeles Times, gave it an unqualified rave, courtesy of their veteran reviewer, Kevin Thomas. An excellent horror film, he wrote. What makes for really good horror is not great quantities of blood and guts spilled across the screen, but the sense of pathos and loneliness surrounding the monster heroes. A rare and pleasurable experience done with intelligence and taste. Wasting no time to love a vampire, which ended up being called Lust for a Vampire, went into production from July the 6th to August the 18th, 1970, before The Vampire Lovers was even released. The Fantal team of fine style and screenwriter Tudor remained, 
but directing duties went to veteran Hammer screenwriter Jimmy Sangster. After Terence Fisher was again found to be physically unable to participate. Having done a faithful version of Carmilla with the vampire lovers, Tudor takes nothing from the novella this time but the names of Carmilla in its various forms and Karnstein. His original story for To Love a Vampire is blatantly and repetitiously exploitative of softcore lesbian sex and lacks surprise, suspense, originality and characterization. Sangster had been a production manager before becoming a screenwriter and as a director, he is a great production manager. His staging is stiff, his camera coverage unimaginative, and his performers vary from over the top to unconvincing. But he did come in on time and on budget. 22-year-old Jutta Stensgaard brings none of the personality to the role of Carmilla, previously provided by Ingrid Pitt, who was elsewhere for Hammer, playing Countess Dracula. Ralph Bates gives the film's worst performance as a girl's school instructor, replacing Peter Cushing, who had to bow out just before shooting because of his wife's illness. The film was shot at Hazelwood House, later renamed Hunton Park near Kings Langley in Hertfordshire and at the Elstree Studios on a budget of £160,000. It was ready to be trade shown by November 1970 and went on general release in Britain by MGM EMI on January 17, 1971. Lust for a Vampire made a profit but did not do the spectacular business of the vampire lovers. In America, the film had trouble finding distribution until Continental released it on September the 2nd, 1971. Variety described the film as tepid and wrote that it was more humorous than frightening. By contrast, the next sequel made by the Fantile team, Twins of Evil, became one of Hammer Film's best efforts of the 70s. Another original story from Gates, again taking nothing from Le Fanu's Carmilla, but the names of Mirkala and Karnstein. Twins of Evil benefits from a fine director in John Huff, a larger budget of £205,000, beautiful cinematography, excellent sets, locations, costumes and props, and a moving, tragic performance from a grieving Peter Cushing. The project started as a direct sequel to Lust for a Vampire called Vampire Virgins, to star Cushing as Count Karnstein, seeking revenge for the death of Mia Kala. Wiser heads prevailed, and the story was much revised to focus on the battle between a sincere and misguided Puritan witchfinder named Gustav Weil, played by Cushing, and a decadent vampire, Count Karnstein, played by a ranting Damien Thomas. At stake are the souls of Weil's beautiful young identical twin nieces, played by Playboy models Madeleine and Mary Collinson. This was Cushing's first movie 
after the death of his beloved wife, Helen. And his tremendous loss shows in Cushing's gaunt face and interior performance. He makes the cruel, judgmental and intolerant vile into an obsessed but self-doubting and reluctant warrior for God. Very unlike his strong and confident Dr. Van Helsing in previous Hammer Vampire melodramas. Twins of Evil was shot between March 22nd and April 30th, 1971, at Pinewood Studios and Black Park. Having honed his expressive visual style on the TV show The Avengers, director Huff inventively composed and blocked the action with veteran cinematographer Dick Bush. Of Hammer Films' gothic horror movies, Huff said, I was a fan of what they were doing. Be less graphic and make it more atmospheric and intrigue in that way. Huff's style most resembles that of Roy Ward Baker on The Vampire Lovers, visualising the inner eyes world of spirits and demons as they break through to the reality of the 17th century. Huff is also not afraid to allow the excesses of Gothic literature to play out in melodramatic terms with declaiming villains, stark moral confrontations and bloody violence, all surrounded by crumbling castles, dark forests, thunderstorms and billowing mists. Mirkala, this time played by Katia Wyeth, makes a brief appearance to seduce and vampirize Count Karnstein. And the monthly film bulletin wrote, The reincarnation of Countess Mirkala, an ectoplasmic shape rising from the sarcophagus and floating in hooded silence towards the terrifying Karnstein, is a tour de force. Distributed in Britain by Rank, the film premiered at London's New Victoria with Hammer's Hands of the Ripper on October the 3rd, 1971 and went into general release on October the 17th. The monthly film bulletin called it easily the best of Hammer's vampire films for some time. Today's cinema wrote that it was a more plausibly constructed story than most of its kind, and no less than Universal Pictures released it in the United States, shorn of 5 minutes and 36 seconds of nudity and bloodshed, on July the 13th, 1972, again with Hands of the Ripper. Variety said, Settings, production values, camera work and acting are all of a high standard. Hammer discussed making a fourth Karnstein movie with Fontal to be called Vampire Hunter. But the returns for Twins of Evil persuaded them to abandon the series. Nevertheless, Hammer Films and Fantal had created a viable commercial subgenre to the horror movie with their three lesbian vampire films. In the decades following the Hammer series, Le Fanu's Carmilla continued to fascinate filmmakers around the world. Surprisingly, none of their efforts would attempt another faithful retelling after The Vampire Lovers. The year after the release of Twins of Evil, Spanish director Vincent Aranda 
used the novella as a springboard for a personal and challenging version that used the vampire Carmilla as a representation of repressed feminine rage over the injustices of the male patriarchy. She appears in modern times, emerging from under the sands of a beach resort to help an oppressed wife exact revenge on her brutal and neglectful husband and all masculine authority. Perhaps because it was a Spanish movie from 1972, the fascist husband wins this war of the sexes in the end. An even more delirious version appeared from Mexico in 1975 from director Juan Lopez Moctezuma. Referencing characters and themes from not only Carmilla, but Bram Stoker's Dracula, Matthew Lewis's The Monk, and Aldous Huxley's The Devil of Ludon, Moctezuma's Alacarda is a shocking and gory stew of lesbian vampires, devil worshippers, possessed nuns and exorcising priests. For the first time, a movie visualises Le Fanu's description of Carmilla resting nude in a coffin filled with blood. But this incredible sight gets lost among the profane frenzy surrounding it. Neither side in this war between Christianity and witchcraft seems sympathetic. They both use similar violent tactics against each other. In the end, both forces are destroyed with the film endorsing neither Catholicism nor anti-clericalism. From this point on, Le Fanu's Carmilla served merely as inspiration for versions that never pretended to explore the depths of its actual text. Showtime Network's Nightmare Classics remake in 1989 set it in the American South shortly after the Civil War. But this merely became a period backdrop for vampire clichés from across the range of the genre. The Moth Diaries from 2011 was actually adapted from a novel of the same name which referenced Le Fanu's work, even as it paraphrased it in an all-girls school. The Unwanted from 2014 reset the story in a small town in rural Georgia, using Carmilla to liberate the sexual orientation of a young abused girl trapped there. And of course, low-budget exploitation titles like J. Sheridan de Fanu's Vampire Carmilla from 1989, Carmilla the Lesbian Vampire from 2004, and Blood Wine from 2008 merely use the character as an excuse for softcore sex and violence. Le Fanu took the title for his anthology containing Carmilla from the Bible. 1 Corinthians, verse 13. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. St. Paul's letter to the Corinthians refers to knowledge of the spiritual world, seen but dimly during life, but revealed in full after death. 
Le Fanu chose it carefully for his title, since all of the haunted protagonists in his stories do gain a degree of self-awareness in their encounters with figures from the hidden realms. Laura in Carmilla finds herself unwillingly attracted to the death figure of the predatory vampire, even as she is repulsed by her. And in that, Laura stands for all of us, drawn to the beauty and the exciting enlightenment of the unknown, while still terrified of the dark and permanent abyss that seductively beckons. Good morning, Mr. Ebhard. Good morning, Mr. Uh, Mr. Morton asked me to call in Siena. When? Well, when he left for Vienna. Emma is not here. She's gone for a picnic. She'll be out all day. With her friend. What friend? Well, Mr. Morton said that she had a friend staying with her. Oh, no, not any longer. Oh. Well, I'll call back later, perhaps. Tomorrow? We shall be busy tomorrow. Call next week, Mr. Ebhard. Mr. Renton, it's Miss Emma. She looks so ill. Does Mademoiselle Peridot know about this? I don't know, sir. I suppose so. She asked me to fetch her up a tray. Very well, Gretchen. Excuse me, mademoiselle. Yes, Renton, what is it? It's Miss Emma. If I may be so bold, I think she should see the doctor. But... 
I shall send for the doctor, Renton, should I think it necessary. Very good, mademoiselle. Camilla. Not as beautiful as you, my love. <laughs> You've had more than enough tonight. Oh. She's right, you know. Wouldn't do for a man in my position to be caught drunk and disorderly. Oh, that's all right, Mr. Renton. Why, your master's away. That's just the point, Kurt. That's just the point. I've been left in a position of responsibility. Miss Emma's very ill. Oh, uh, what is the nature of the illness, Mr. Renton? Well, how would I know, man? I'm not the doctor. Why won't that blasted governess let me send for him? That's what I want to know. I shall send for the doctor, and should I think it necessary. It's <laughs> more like a bloody vampire, that one. It's only a joke. Not round here, it isn't, Mr. Renton. There's been three deaths round here lately. None of them by natural causes. Just a scream in the night and then found there, pale as death. Pale as death? The blood drained from them. God. Good night, Mr. Renton. What is it, my darling? Camila, I'm dying. Yes. Will I live until father comes home? There's a sharp wind tonight, Renton. Doctor? Mademoiselle Cavadot. I'm afraid Mr. Morton is away. Yes, I know. Had a message from him. Asked me to look in on Miss Emma. Was this you, Renton? I am, sir. She has not been well, but I'm sure it is nothing that need trouble you. I'll be able to set his mind at rest, then. 
Is she dead? Not yet, thank heavens. What the devil have you got there? Garlic flowers, sir. They, um, they have an antiseptic scent. Have you been listening to village gossip? No, sir. Illness is a matter for modern science, not witchcraft. Yes, sir. Take those flowers away at once. Mademoiselle, this is my patient. Kindly do not interfere. Hmm. Quite healthy, I suppose. You can get some more, Renton. Yes, sir. Where is Mademoiselle Perrineau? I, um, I don't know, sir. Very well. See that Miss Emma is not disturbed. Have one of the maids sit up with her all night. Very good, sir. I'll be back in the morning. Very well, sir. I have sent for Mr. Morton, sir. Good. Whatever happens, keep her away from Miss Emma. Yes, sir. Good night, Doctor. Good night. Told you to put those there, Mr. Renton, Mademoiselle. Take them out, please. But Mademoiselle, take them out. Yes, Mademoiselle. Renton, will you kindly remember that I am in charge of this house during Mr. Morton's absence? Certainly, Mademoiselle. Then why did you order those weeds to be put in Miss Emma's room? Not I, Mademoiselle. The doctor. I'm sure we're agreed that. He is in charge of the patient. Take those back, Gretchen. Sir. Take them away. Why don't you take them away, Mamsel?
on, Jupiter. What's the matter with you, Jupiter? Sir? Good morning. How is Miss Emma? She's sleeping, sir. Peacefully. Had it not been for the doctor, sir, and these remedies... It's ridiculous. I can't believe it. Neither could I, sir, at first. But let the landlord tell you. It is the Karnsteins come back. From that old ruined castle, the story is they were all wiped out. Aye, sir. So we thought. There was a young nobleman whose sister was murdered by them. This gentleman, a Baron Hartog, he crept up to the castle late at night and he lay in wait. He saw a shroud and he knew that without it there would be no resting place for any vampire. Baron Hartog took the shroud and he waited. He chopped off the head of the vampire and he staked the rest in their graves. Well, then how could these, these things be here now? It's nonsense. I beg you to listen to him, sir. Think of Miss Emma. If you don't believe me, sir, ask General Spielsdorf. General Spielsdorf? The general has gone away, sir, to visit a friend of the Baron Hartog. Yes, I remember now, the general. That was where he went, sir. Where is the doctor? It's past noon. He said he'd be here this morning. Oh, yes, he said he'd come. Shall I send for him? You know, I'll go myself. Gretchen? Yes, miss? Do not disturb Mademoiselle Perrodot today, please. She does not feel well and wants to stay in her room. Yes, miss. How is Miss Emma? She doesn't seem to get any better. She had a quiet night. Are you going in to see her, miss? Perhaps. But I cannot stand the smell of those flowers. Could you not remove them? I dare not, miss. Mr. Renton said I wasn't to move them under any circumstances. 
Where's Mr. Renton? I don't know, miss. Thank you, Gretchen. Morton, General Spielsdorf. I cannot stop now. I'm on my way to fetch the doctor. The doctor is with us, Mr. Morton. What? Where? Here. Traveled many miles to find Baron Hartog. And very glad I am to make this journey back here with him. But you, as an Englishman, Mr. Morton, will be less aware than we are of the need to seek out these evils immediately and to destroy them. Then you believe that it is true about this family of vampires? I know that it is true. You asked where we were going, Mr. Morton. Now I will tell you, and you can leave us if you wish. Our destination is Karnstein Castle. to avenge the death of my sister. I knew where these monsters sprang from and what had to be done to rid the world of them. But face to face, my limbs seemed paralyzed. I prayed to God to give me back their strength. But when the moment came, I could not move. has been a nightmare all my life. I was saved by a cross I wore. As it touched the vision of beauty which confronted me, I, I 
felt a shock of evil. And God, in his mercy, gave power to my arm. It was a woman. A very beautiful woman. Thank you. I think I'll sit with Miss Emma for a while. Yes, miss. Oh, Renton? Yes, miss. I wonder if you could have those garlic flowers removed. They upset Miss Emma. I'm sorry, miss, I can't do that. The doctor was most insistent. That seems silly. They have a horrid smell. You wouldn't want to cause Miss Emma discomfort, would you? I'm sorry, miss, I can't move them. Why not? Why are they there? Well, I can't explain, miss. Why not? I'm not a child. You are in some things, miss. What things? It's best to keep away from Miss Emma's room. And best to keep away from Mademoiselle Peridot. Why Mademoiselle Peridot? She's a wicked woman. If she's human. You don't mean... Yes, miss. Oh, no! Here is her sweet and gentle face. Mia Carla. Marcela? That girl is a guest in my house. Her name is Carmela. And my daughter is dying. Morton, wait. Ebhard knows every inch of these forests. He'll get to your house in half the time. For God's sake, save her! Ha, 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 ha. 
It's marking her neck. Put it back in the case. It's not marking her neck, sir. Do it's... as you're told, girl. No. Light, over here. We must find that grave and quickly. Away. But, sir, you said yourself I, I wasn't to... Do as I say! Shroud. Fetch the box. Camila. Em, you can get up now. I will give you strength. 
come. I'm taking you with me. But my father... Come. Hurry. The coffin has gone. For God's sake, where? Anywhere in this castle or in these grounds. But there is still time. I doubt if she's yet returned. And she will not return until she has glutted herself with the blood of at least one victim. How can you be sure? Vampires are intelligent beings, General. They know when the forces of good are arraigned against them. She will want to rest a long time in her coffin. We must find that shroud. You're coming with me to my home. It's not far from here. You can rest there. Satana! Apage Satana!
Only now can I see the evil in her eyes. I will do it. He is praying that his daughter is still alive. I know that Laura is dead. that Styria has been rid of these devils forever.
It's over. It's over. <laughs> <laughs>